This is kind of an odd time in fish's history. I came into Woco with me being the guy with the story. It was sometimes uh, appropriate for Soundgarden, sometimes not. 20 years writing about music. Dozens of cassettes in a drawer. Get ready for conversations that time nearly forgot. Dave's old interview tapes. Hi, I'm Indianapolis Star reporter Dave Lindquist, and welcome to Dave's Old Interview Tapes, a podcast that digs up musical conversations from an era when corn was a massive band and high fructose corn syrup was a minor problem. Today's episode revisits a 2002 interview with Carlos Santana, the Rock and Roll Hall of Famer who ignited his career 50 years ago at Woodstock and later won eight Grammy Awards on a single night in 2000. We'll hear Carlos talk about his method for writing music. I just get quiet late at night and I play for about two, three hours. Hear him talk about exploring multiple styles. I'm not afraid to go from Aborigine music or African music or jazz, blues or opera. I mean, I'm just not afraid. And learn about the importance of cover art. Just by looking at it, you know there was something in it. Uh, you know, and that's how I buy my CD sometimes when I go, most of the times when I go to Paris, uh-huh. I just look at the tower and I go, oh yeah, this one's got some, this one's serious. Our in-studio guest for this episode of Dave's Old Interview Tapes is Charlie Ballantyne, the world-class jazz guitarist who will release a new album, Cold Coffee, on June 28th. Charlie, how are you? I'm great, Dave. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you here. As a guitarist, I'm sure you've dissected the playing of a lot of cats. Uh, what does is, what is Carlos Santana mean to you in terms of guitar playing? For me, it, it can kind of be boiled down almost to one word, and that's tone, you know, or sound. I've yeah. always thought that, you know, Carlos, he, he digs deep emotionally, and it, it always resembles like a human voice to me. And that's what I've always really loved about Carlos is that He's he's got his own his own language, his own sound, his own vibe, and you know, with all the stuff that was going on around him back then, he he's so unique. Yeah, it broke through. I remember when I first saw the Woodstock film, and certainly, you know, the the apex of the whole Woodstock weekend, people point to to Jimi Hendrix uh, naturally. But there were two performances that blew me away. One was uh, Santana's Soul Sacrifice, and the other was Alvin Lee with 10 Years After on uh, I'm Going Home. Yeah, and people people often forget that 10 Years After were at Woodstock, you know, but I, I agree that's some of my favorite stuff from that. And it, I, I love Hendrix. I'm sitting here with a Bold as Love tattoo on my arm. But, yeah, the Woodstock stuff was never my, you know, favorite Hendrix recordings I like it a lot but he went on at what five in the morning and you know there were a lot of extenuating circumstances it was like the festival was supposed to be over yeah by then um but Santana yeah that's I've known you know a lot of people in my dad's generation who were there and the people who were there typically it's like 10 years after Jefferson Airplane is one that people liked a lot and then it's almost like unanimous like the people who got to see Santana it's like that was the show for us their record had not come out yet. I read that it was like a Bill Graham, you know, Bill Graham deal making thing. It's like, all right, I'll help with Woodstock, but I got this hot band that is going to come out later this year, but you need to put them on the bill. Wow. I, I've always wondered because you see the uh, 
the pay scale now. They have that sheet out, and <laughs> yeah. he's he's towards the bottom, Pretty I low. think, and had yeah. the biggest band. Uh, Definitely a, a daytime uh, performance. Yeah. So you mentioned your father. Uh, we should uh, let listeners in on uh, on your family music background. Yeah, my dad Scott Ballantyne has uh, been a part of the indie music scene. You know, he owned stores and was in a lot of popular bands in the seventies. I think just as many people know him from his guitar playing as they do owning his guitar and record shops around town. So I was I was exposed to a lot of a lot of amazing music as soon as I, I got into guitar, like I remember he gave me a stack of CDs and in there was Stevie Ray, um, Jimi Hendrix, Santana, Jeff Beck. And I, I want to say there was also a, one of the first Chicago albums because, yeah, we've always been, um, you know, big, big Terry Kath people that he's in the same school as all those other guys, even though he kind of had a short run, right, you know, right. and isn't often talked about as much. That's a great point. He is not, uh, <clears throat> I don't think, appreciated on a level that he, he probably deserves to be. Yeah. Okay. So when did you start playing guitar? I was 15 before I asked for a guitar for my birthday. And I I got a guitar like a little student squire type of model. And um, yeah, and I just, I was right before the YouTube era. So I couldn't, I couldn't just get on YouTube and learn how to play songs. So I put those CDs in, I put Santana in, and I just would solo, you know, the one or two scales I knew uh-huh. of these records and then you start to realize, oh, he's doing this type of thing, you know, adding adding these tonalities, and you just start to develop. Uh, at least that's how you used to learn how to play music was just developing your your sound based on the records you were playing along with. So nice. Did you start with an electric guitar? I did. I think I had both, but I I've always felt that, and this is from my dad, that electric's so much easier to start on to like get the dexterity down because it's it's a much lighter touch yeah you're you know, not fighting the strings yeah so it's a, a little more effortless on the left hand so i started out on a pretty easy electric okay and uh you're known today as a telecaster player if i'm correct yep and uh so carlos i think at woodstock was playing a gibson sg yeah and in recent era you know modern era he's known for playing prs is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think he was one of their first huge, huge names on, on their team. And I, I play a Telecaster, but I do have what are called like mini humbuckers, which are kind of a Gibson style pickup. And a large part is because of Carlos, because it gives you the sustain. You know, like when, when he bends a note, usually when you bend a pitch, the vibration stops and that pitch disappears, you know, or dies in volume. Uh. But his ability to bend a note, like in Europa, you know, and a lot of those instrumental tunes, the pitch just stays there. It stays constant, which is something I've always tried to kind of capture. I love it. That's what we want on Dave's old interview tapes. Thank (laughs) you. Okay, so I interviewed Carlos in 1999, right before Supernatural was released. For people who don't know the story of Dave's old interview tapes, uh, I started at the Indianapolis Star writing about music in 1998, and from 1998 to 2004, I did all my interviews on cassette tape. And then when we moved offices a few years ago, I found this drawer with all these interview tapes, and that's how we got to this podcast. 
unfortunately, I don't know what happened to that 99 interview, uh, but I do have this 2002 interview, which happened before the release of an album called Shaman, which was the, you know, more or less the sequel to Supernatural. Supernatural was the one that had all the all-star guests on it and it won the eight Grammys. But when I talked to Carlos in 2002, he gave me a little insight on how he finds the music he makes. I just keep my ears open, my heart open. If I want to get my own music, music that doesn't come from a book or somebody else's library or somebody else's heart, I just get quiet late at night and I play for about two, three hours late at night and I videotape myself because I don't like, I, you know, I'm not really a computer literate. So what I do, I just put a video camera on myself and I just go. And then within 45 minutes, you know, playing music is just like scuba diving. If you want to get the black pearls, you got to go deep. You know, so after about 45 minutes or just not, you turn off the TV, turn off everything, and you play past the mechanics that you know. You get, you play past B, Peter Green or B.B. King or Stevie Ray or Prince. You, you, you play past all the people that you love until you don't, you're not quoting their skin anymore. You, yeah. you get to your own skin, and then you find two, three notes that you go, oh my God, <laughs> those notes are like really different. Those are my notes, you know? That's fascinating to me, not being an artist, but uh, what do you think about that concept of, you know, cycling through all your influences until you find uh, something that's that's all yours? Yeah, I, I love that idea. I think it's it's really accurate, you know, and, and he's a guy that you listen to and definitely has a lot of different influences, like a lot of us. And when I'm playing, I feel like there's, you know, Jimi Hendrix on one shoulder, Wes Montgomery on the other, and, you know, 20 other guys <laughs> that have influenced me that really have nothing to do with each other. But if you dig deep enough into those guys, I agree there is like this, this lower level. I love the scuba diving analogy because there's like a lower level of like you get down there and you're like, oh man, I don't, I don't think anyone else has been here before. It's like this, this land where anything is possible, you know. And and if you dig deep enough, you you start to experience those moments more and more, and um, you know, develop your own sound through your your acumen and your your knowledge of what's happened before you. Santana has a performance coming up in Indianapolis, August 9, at Ruoff Home Mortgage Music Center, formerly Deer Creek. And this summer, 2002, uh, I mentioned the Shaman album. It wasn't released yet. I know acts probably like to tour once the record is out, but sometimes things don't fall into place that way. So he was starting a tour before the record came out, and basically all I knew was the title, Shaman. Uh, so he gave me just uh, a thumbnail version of what that meant to him. A shaman is um, a healer, someone who brings balance. You know, if there's balance, there is no cancer, there is no tuberculosis, there is no... Balance comes from thinking right. So Carlos is kind of a mind-expanding uh, dude. He doesn't always talk in like the same terms that everybody talks in. <laughs> it's just fascinating to hear him kind of kind of talk i've i've seen him a couple times actually up at deer creek or whoever owns it these <laughs> days and uh yeah he's very um 
philosophical in his approach. You know, there's there's a lot of meaning to everything he puts out, and there's a lot of intention, even, you know, with his his descriptions of it being, you know, kind of vague and ethereal. There's, I think he, he does truly believe in that that balance and you know when you have like a 20-piece group on stage yeah there's almost nothing more important than balance mm-hmm. um you know and i when i listen to his music that has you know like six backup singers and 15 percussionists and it just sounds like this singular entity mm-hmm. moving through time you know and that's balance is a a great word to think about with with Carlos because everyone's just doing their job perfectly and it creates this like level of singularity. Yeah. Well, that's a a topic that we've uh, addressed earlier this season of Dave's old interview tapes. It was a conversation with Trey Anastasio from fish, his side band at the time, it was during the first fish hiatus. And he was really talking a lot about uh, like Afrobeat uh, bands like fella cootie uh, King Sunny Day, and you know all those players on stage, and how everybody has maybe not what on surface seems like a huge important role, but it all matters and it all locks together. Yeah, and I think there's a misconception that playing playing a lot and playing really fast and really loud is somehow more difficult or complex than restraint. But I think all musicians know that in those situations, doing the same thing for like 10 minutes is one of the hardest things. Yeah. That's why I don't play bass. <laughs> like, because those guys really, it, it takes a mindset of really knowing your role and embracing it, you know? And it's, especially on guitar, it's it's hard to not just fly sometimes. We don't have right. to breathe. It's, it's easy to play, but... <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's interesting how that works. Uh, the shaman idea, I wanted to prod Carlos a little bit more, and I asked him, like, well, is it thematically connected uh, from song to song? And this is what he said. You know, the music speaks for itself. Like, if you listen to, like, a Love Supreme, it's all about healing, but it doesn't yeah. tell you, yeah. you know, to put a, like, a penicillin or yeah. use an aspirin, you know, it's not yeah. like that. It's just, just what's inside the song, what's inside the music or the notes, that's that's the medicine in itself. The music is the medicine itself. And how geeked was I to have Carlos Santana talking to me about John Coltrane's A Love Supreme. <laughs> That's when the job's fun. Yeah, yeah, when you when you sent me these and, and he started he said Love Supreme, like it did kind of give me goosebumps. <laughs> I was like, I'm listening to Santana talk about a Love Supreme right now. And I think he's right too that the music is the medicine, whatever that needs to be. It can it can be your your penicillin, it can be your antidepressant but it's yours it's the medicine that you need and you know want it to be it's nothing nothing specific to any any person it's it just it can be a, a very healing thing okay so are we talking about the performer or the listener does the listener apply their own interpretation to music i've always considered it to be the listener because what the music means to me it doesn't necessarily mean to anyone else and especially like his instrumental stuff that doesn't have any words and in any language it's that really is it's your story as the listener to to get to apply it and and yeah you know because some people will be like oh you know I 
this this song got me through like the hardest part of my life and then the other guy might be like i didn't care for it right you know and so <laughs> it's it's hard to say that the artist um creates all of that because it's it really is perspective and interpretation and taste instrumentals are your forte how do you come up with uh, a song is it is it born during live performance is it piece by piece how much rewriting do you do i'm i'm a big quantity over quality guy so so when i release a record um you know there's usually around 10 songs on it and i probably wrote 30 wow you know and and it's just kind of about like sifting through that and then what i i do with my groups we've played together so long that if i write out anything it's very vague because i know that whatever I give anyone, um, if it's too specific, it will take away from a great thing that maybe they could have contributed to the music. So even though I'm writing these melodies, I consider it very much like a collective, um, collective effort of the group and the different personalities and just a a level of trust, you know, in in the people that I'm surrounded by. Okay. So down the road, you're going to have a lot of archival uh, stuff to release. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, gosh, I I hope those never see the light <laughs> of day. But, yeah, there's there's boxes and folders at our house of countless, countless things that didn't make the cut on different records. And, you know, a lot of the songs from, from our first couple records we wouldn't be able to play if we were asked to at this point. It's been too long. So... Just kind of always evolving, you know, and and using the the people around you to to make that process as progressive as possible. At the record store, your stuff is filed under jazz, uh, but I don't consider you to be pigeonholed. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean it's it's jazz because I guess someone called it that once, or I went to music school or something. But you know. Santana was one of the first guys that I I came across that was writing instrumental rock tunes. You know, um, like Hendrix has has a couple instrumental things. You know, but a lot of that's you know on on kind of the bluesier side. But you know, Santana, Europa, and Soul Sacrifice are, are big ones for me. Where I it dawned on me when I was in music school, like I can write instrumental rock music or I can it doesn't have to swing it mm-hmm. doesn't like if you're in jazz and you're writing instrumental music you have these these walls around you like well it should be this complex harmonically it should feel like this kind of a swing feel the drummer should be going spang lang you know stuff like that but I've always been huge fans of guys that maybe have that jazz knowledge like Santana or Jeff Beck or Hendrix you know is starting to get into but they also have they also like the blues guys and they also like yeah. the rock guys and the metal guys and it comes out in their writing and their playing that um there's an amalgamation of of all sorts of influences and Terry Kath again was a huge one just his his vocabulary on the neck it's like this is a jazz guy just playing incredible rock yeah. music right now okay listeners we've had a first uh first edition of a technical term on today's podcast Spangalang, the drummer. Is that what you yeah, said? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like that's like the jazz, like spang, spang, lang, spang. You know, and I've I've heard a lot of uh, people 
call it different things. Like this gospel band I was in, we did a lot of pocket stuff, and the drummer's trying to get a swing feel, and the, the saxophone player was like, come on, man, just keep the gig, keep the gig, keep the gig. <laughs> right, keep, right, you know, right. just on the ride symbol, <laughs> just like say that over and over. I like it. Um, yeah. That's motivation as well. As, uh, <laughs> Carlos Santana, no doubt, uh, never a qualm about exploring uh, different types of music, and he uh, talked to me a little bit about that. We cover a lot of ground. Uh, as you know, I'm not afraid, you know, to, like, like my brother, Rod Cooter, I'm not afraid to go from Aborigine music or African music or jazz, blues or opera. I mean, I'm just not afraid. You know, some people only stick to one thing. They just, just, they just do rap or they just do hip hop or they just do blues or they just do jazz. You know what I mean? Yeah. And we're not afraid uh, to just play music. Try to honor and play music uh, in the most sincere and honest way that we can. So honesty. And integrity, I think, are things that people associate uh, with Carlos. He doesn't fake it. No, he definitely doesn't. You know, and I think there's that whole era of players. There was something very honest about, like, Jerry, Garcia, Santana, Hendrix. You can you can hear in their performances, even their studio performances, that they're they're going places that they have never gone before Mm. and i think that's you know because now we have this idea of what a studio thing needs to sound like it needs to probably have a click it needs to be really in time a lot of you know compression to make the instruments sound just like perfect and isolated and um and it's kind of (laughs) dishonest um but you know someone like carlos it's you listen to him and when you feel that he's taking you somewhere he's never taken anyone else before, that's like the pinnacle of honesty to me as a musician because you are truly going out on a limb. Like, I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen here. But right. I hope everyone likes it. <laughs> okay. And as we've discussed a little bit, it's more than just musical notes for Carlos. Uh, he's a philosophical, uh, deep guy. And during our conversation, he listed these five qualities that I really appreciated. And, and I guess, what, what do people say? It doesn't cost anything to be nice. That, that's like a phrase. Yeah. <laughs> so he listed these things, and I was thinking about it. I'm like, you know, these are all accessible to anybody. You don't have to be at a certain social station uh, to, to apply these things to your life. So let's hear Carlos. We have beauty, elegance, excellence, grace, and dignity. Those five qualities are really powerful. Beauty, excellence, elegance, grace, dignity. They're not just words, man. They're like as deep as the Pacific Ocean. But you gotta check and get wet in it. Okay, again, uh, Carlos using some uh, water depth uh, analogy. And uh, just over the years, or maybe that day, there's something happened to our tape there. But what he said was you have to jump in. Yeah, and I th- I think it's, it's interesting that he used those terms because they all... Like pride's not in there, you know, and uh, it's these are all qualities that require back to you know restraint and beauty, elegance, grace, yeah. dignity, and I, I that's what I've always just loved about his playing is that he wasn't trying to outdo the people of that era. He was just trying to create something beautiful and elegant, and it it comes out in his lyrical playing, the, his tone that sounds like a beautiful female voice, you know, and. Um, I, th- I think 
I don't know if he was just, you know, winging it when he said those five things, <laughs> but it doesn't sound like it yeah, to me yeah. because those so accurately describe, you know, what I feel when I'm listening to him play a line. All right. So probably my favorite modern uh, guitarist is Derek Trucks. And he and you, you, Charlie, are both of that school like, I don't need to be flashy. I'm going to be restrained and uh, accomplish something here. Just just listen. A lot of that for me was awareness um, because I think I think all of us at one point, Carlos, Derek Trucks, we wanted to be the shredder. Yeah. We wanted to be the guy that played faster and more complex than everyone else. And then at a certain point, I remember realizing, like, soon after I got out of music school and started playing gigs with people, I was like, I'm overplaying. I'm, this isn't me. I don't think this is the voice that I am supposed to inhabit right now. And so I started writing tunes that were slower, you know, and that had less of a melody going on than stuff I'd previously written. I just started to try and settle into to playing less, which, like I said, turned out to be harder than just burning through scales thoughtlessly. Because every note becomes significant um, because you don't know when you're going to play the next one. It might be four <laughs> bars. Um, Thank you. Yeah. I wanted to talk to Carlos about how things were somewhat bleak in 2002. And I also recalled uh, something he told me when I spoke with him in 1999. You told me there are two forces in the world, uh, love and fear. Yeah. Um, but and no more than ever. Things are bleak, man. Yeah, but we have the love. We have the love. It's just that they're not showing that on TV, man. They're not showing that on the radio as much. You know, they, they show killing, killing, killing. 2002 or 2019. Oh, man. You know, I think things are, are similar. Some things have gotten better and some things have gotten worse. But I, I think it's still accurate. You know, there are two big forces out there for sure that... Um, hasn't changed since 2002. In 2019, there's there's more love than ever, but there's certainly more hate, you know. Um, so it's I I don't think I could choose between <laughs> those <laughs> two years. They're they're both bleak, and they're both uh, there's a lot of light, you know, in both of them too. You're gonna put out a record this year, Cold Coffee. What can you tell me about that? Cold Coffee uh, was one that I I had been trying to write after we released our Bob Dylan tribute, the instrumental tribute we did last year. Um, hit some major like writers block after the Dylan thing because I was so immersed in those songs, what I consider to be some of the best songs ever written. Sure. I was really immersed in for about a year, and so. It was probably six months after that release. I finally, like one week, just had a, a string of inspiration, um, wrote about 20 tunes, and it usually was between 11 at night and like 4 in the morning. And I was just, there were like coffee cups around <laughs> from throughout the day and that I was just kind of drinking to, okay. to keep going. And and it's a trio record, uh, me, Jesse Whitman on bass, and Chris Parker on drums, which is... You know, a lot of my albums have had five or six yeah. people on them, so this was 
something I've wanted to do for a long time. All my favorite guitar records are trio, um, whether it's Hendrix or John Schofield or Bill Frizzell or Wes Montgomery. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a really fun instrumentation to to kind of connect with. You know, you, it's a really tight unit when there's only three of you and a lot of listening going on. All instrumentals? All instrumentals, yeah. And this one is, um, I think there's nine songs and two of them are kind of our arrangements to jazz standards and the rest are original music okay okay now this picture of all the coffee cups around do you ever see that movie signs oh yeah i love that movie <laughs> there's the you know the all these water uh glasses and bottles are everywhere and it ends up being very important at the at the end of the movie yeah much like the cold coffee yeah i don't know if this record would have um been written had i not just for a week left all my half filled coffee cups around but it turned out to be quite a motivator cover art the cover art i'm i'm different than carlos i'm pretty minimalist uh he has some of the most incredible extravagant cover art and of all time you know in popular music especially and and I'm I'm always uh, here's a picture of the band and here's the music we made <laughs> type of uh, formula. I've you know I've I did cover art on I think Where Is My Mind. A great local artist named Chad Hankins did did that sketch and and I loved it. Um, but at the same time, I I like the idea of just like here's the musicians and and here's the music. I don't like to hide anything or. Uh, I don't want the cover art to be better <laughs> than the music okay. or people to anticipate I got that. Yeah, yeah. something else might happen. Um, so it's kind of like you drop the needle on that first track, and um, that's the first impression right. you kind of get of what's about to happen. Okay. So are you saying the cover is a picture of the musicians? Yeah, it's a Polaroid. Of, <laughs> uh, we were at the Jazz Kitchen doing a trio gig, and um, the bass player had a Polaroid, and my wife Amanda was there, and... I was like, hey, you want to just snap a picture of us in the back room real quick? And didn't know what would become of that, but this Polaroid was sitting on my coffee table for quite a while. And when it came around time to do the cover art, and there was even a little bit of coffee spilled on it. So uh-huh. it was just like there you go. destiny. I was like, that's our cover. Without knowing what uh, Shaman's cover was, I naturally asked Carlos. I love the artwork for uh, Supernatural. What's what do you got cooking this time? This looks really powerful. It's a, it's a face of a of a shaman. Uh-huh. But when you look at it, you go first. It, I mean, it really sta- it's going to stand out in Tower Records or any kind of music uh-huh. store because it's just the colors again are like, oh, I gotta get this. You know, just by looking at it, you know, like even with Supernatural, just by looking at it, you know there was something in it. Uh-huh. You know, and that's how I buy my CD sometimes when I go. Most of the times when I go to Paris. Uh-huh. I just look at the tower and I go, oh yeah, this one's got some, this one's serious. All right, Carlos does his uh, music shopping in Paris. And what's cool is uh, that was an era when CDs were uh, dominant, but you go in a record store today, you get the full, big, uh, nice picture on vinyl. I guess I should have asked, is there a vinyl pressing of cold coffee in the works? Yep, we're releasing it on digital CD and vinyl. Nice. Are you surprised that that Santana can be swindled by a, a good cover? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a great notion. Um, 
but you know, never judge a vinyl. <laughs> I just I I feel like that would lead to some disappointment at times, I you agree. know. I um, but I I love that that's how he chooses his music. It's, <laughs> it feels very Santana to me. When you see the Santana band live, you're getting a lot more than just Carlos Santana guitar solos. Uh, we were talking a little bit earlier about that. It's every musician uh, has an important role, and I was asking uh, Carlos about the band that he was going to take out in 2002. And I mentioned that I really enjoyed the playing of his keyboard player, Chester Thompson. Now, Chester was in the band from 83 to 2009. Uh, now, there's another famous Chester Thompson who's a drummer, played with Frank Zappa and Genesis. And in Santana Trivia, there was an album in the 80s that featured both Chester Thompson and Chester Thompson but I really enjoyed what Carlos told me about uh, kind of the the two band member collaboration. Well, he's a real great gentleman, you know, and uh, I love Weather Report because I love the relationship that Wayne Shorter had with Joe Sawano, you know, and, and uh, Coltrane had with McCoy, you know. It's, it's like, to me, it's, uh, you know, uh, Lennon and McCartney, you know, accused Richards and Mick Jagger, you know, and I really found a friend and a brother we can go wherever we want to go. So that's Carlos talking about uh, Chester Thompson, the keyboard player. Uh, now, Charlie, you've told me that this upcoming record is a trio, uh, but just I was curious. I'm like, oh, I wonder if uh, like Amanda, for instance, has, has been a creative partner that uh, that's really helped your music. Definitely, and it's you know it's it's different when. Uh, we're we're married, you know, so there's not there's a, a connection that even when we're playing music we can feel is is deeper and it's maybe something else too, you know, it's um it's a it's a very deep connection, but it's unlike any deep musical connection I've I've had with with anybody like, you know, Jesse Whitman, the bass player I always play with. Um, we don't really talk about what happens on stage or musically, and there are things about my relationship with with him or with Chris Parker that musically are just as deep as as my relationship with Amanda. And um, yeah, it's it's funny how that works because I get that question a lot playing playing music with my wife, but it's not really something you can verbalize. It's very personal uh, and very honest. Maybe too much so you when you're on a gig with your wife and you do something she doesn't like musically a normal musician <laughs> you know would, yeah. would be like oh that was weird but i won't say anything but you know you get in the car afterwards and she's like what happened on the bridge of <laughs> yeah. um so it's it's just different it's more honest and i'm the same way with her where i'm like what were you doing on that the end of that one tune and it's it's fun in that way, but I also like the relationships that we don't talk about the music, and it it just happens. And if you talk about it, it'll it'll disappear. Or something. It's that kind of deep connection that I really like. Also, nice. Uh, I don't think we mentioned saxophone. Is her instrument? Yes. Yeah. And she's uh, an artist uh, on her in her own right. Yeah. Put out absolutely. a record last year, right? Yeah, she put out her first. Uh, record as a band leader she's been on all my records but this was really an amazing instrumental endeavor where she had uh two saxophones it was her and rob dixon on most of the record wow. uh, some really incredible part writing um 
she had a feature in Downbeat, and it was it was a really really great record for her. Indianapolis has a long tradition of uh, great musicians, uh, specifically in jazz. I, it was so fun to come to town in 1998 and learn about Wes Montgomery and Freddie Hubbard and J.J. Johnson and David Baker and Slide Hampton and Phil Ranlin and Larry Ridley and the list goes on and on, Mel Ryan. What's it like to be a, a, a modern player? And you mentioned uh, Rob Dixon, who collaborated on that on that album. I mean, I put Rob against anybody in the country. Yeah, Rob's Rob's the goat, in my opinion. You know, he's a... Uh... And he's he's the best musician I've ever been close to, um, if that makes sense. Like, really had a friendship with, and I've I've been very lucky to do a lot with Rob. But you're right, he comes from a tradition that he he definitely respects a lot. I mean, we have Freddie Hubbard, J.J. Johnson, and and that means a lot to to Rob and to me, to the Tucker Brothers, to Jared Thompson. You know, kind of upholding this tradition that no one else seems to know about you know but it to the musicians in town I mean we I think we all kind of chose indie you know in a way for that reason it's yeah. it's just there's tradition jazz tradition oozing out of the walls I got to study with David Baker oh, nice. before he passed at IU and yeah it's it's a really amazing place to to play this music and and you can you can feel that in the air When I interviewed Carlos in 2002, I don't think his last words to me uh, resonated <laughs> with me the way that they did when I listened to his sign-off before we made this podcast. We've been talking about Indianapolis and its uh, music tradition. I'm 99.9% .9 sure that Carlos thought he was talking to a music reporter in the fine city of Minneapolis. Oh, you know what? If you write, if you write something in the paper... Please say hi to my brother Prince, man. Tell him I look forward to hearing from him. Okay. Okay, man. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. So there I was, uh, <laughs> flummoxed or just shocked uh, music journalist wondering why Carlos thought that I might have a pipeline to Prince. <laughs> uh, I wish Prince lived in Indy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's funny, though, because uh, through the years, uh, publicists or you know, just people in the music industry, I think, have confused uh, Minneapolis and Indianapolis. So thanks, Carlos, for uh, making me chuckle uh, 17 <laughs> years later. Thank you, Charlie, for all the six-string science that you brought to this episode uh, devoted to Carlos Santana. Thanks for, for having me. I love talking about him and, and this era of, of music, so it meant a lot. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners. Uh, as always, if you're listening on a format that allows you to rate the podcast, or even if you just tell your friends, all is appreciated. We will return with another episode of Dave's Old Interviews.